Hi, Liz. Hey, Olivia. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to take another sip of my coffee and I'm going to be joining you too. (laughs) (laughs) We have a great episode for you today. We have Roma Johnson. She's a Druid. We met her at Salt House, a little wellness center in town. We were there for an equinox. The spring Um, equinox, yeah. And that was pretty neat. And we decided that we needed to know more about her. So Roma has a really fascinating journey. We hope you enjoy. Most importantly, hi Liz. Hi Olivia. Good morning, Roma. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous spring day out there. It was all I could do to make myself come inside. I know it's really stunning. It's really stunning. Well, thank you for taking the time to be inside with us. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So we usually start our podcast by um, getting a little bit of the background of our guests to tell our listeners, um, you know, where you grew up and what was that like? Could you tell us a little bit of that? Well, it's hard for anyone to imagine if they're over, under, excuse me, under 50 but I grew up in Nebraska, in a small town outside of Omaha, Okay. with families where everybody in the family, all my aunts, uncles, grandparents, and everybody were farmers. And my mother, on her side, and my father on his side, were the only ones that ever left the farm. And so I grew up in this kind of Dick and Jane and Spot and Sally world. Have you ever seen those old books? Well, that's what my childhood looked like. I thought that was the way the world looked. Sure. So a lot of time outside? Oh, we we were turned out in the morning like pets. You know, my my parents Mm. and and my aunts and uncles didn't believe the children belonged in the house. (laughs) And so the older kids had to watch over the little kids. But literally, the minute you had your clothes on, you were sent out. Out you go. And you were brought in for dinner. And you, ro- we, you know, it was a small town, so yeah. we roamed the neighborhood. And, and all mothers were our mother. So if you fell down and, and hurt your knee, you just went to the nearest house. Or if you had to pee, or if you needed a lemonade or something. Or if you did something bad, then you were reported back to your mother by this <laughs> mycelial web of, of mothers in the small town Nebraska. Love it. And if you were really out of control, which I frequently was, you got sent to the farm. (laughs) (laughs) And so you... No more freedom for you. Well, there was lots of freedom on the farm, but there was no habitation around for you to get in trouble with, you Mm, know? mm -hmm. So, yeah, the same rules applied at the farm, although you were given a lot more chores. I'm sure. A lot more chores. Um, What were they farming? They were farming corn, wheat... Sugar beets, mostly, yeah. So I learned how to drive a tractor when I was eight, which was interesting because I couldn't touch, I couldn't reach the pedals with of my course. feet, but they, <laughs> but I could steer it standing up. And so they would, t- my uncle would take me out to the field and you know, uh, working what they called cultivating a field. You just drive the tractor up and down, up and down all day long. So he would just point the tractor in the right way stand me up behind the wheel, start the engine, and off I would go. And so one time I remember that the tractor stalled, and I was just out there, you know. He would leave you standing on the tractor by yourself. Yeah. (laughs) I turned it on for you. Go. Go, Go, Roma. (laughs) 
And so, and so I guess uh, they were in another field, you know, or whatever, and I guess they eventually heard that there was no noise coming from the North 40 or something, so they came and bailed me out. But um, it was amazing. I mean, I can think back to that, and I think there's no other time in my life that I was ever out there by myself in the fields yeah. with nature, agriculture, nature. Yeah, plus nowadays there's all these other things that you can bring your AirPods, you can bring your iPod, you can bring music, but there's nothing. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. Sometimes I feel sorry for kids nowadays that they don't have that, you know, that absolute freedom. Yeah. You know. So did you feel a kind of special connection to the earth at that point, or was it just there in the background as a, a part of your existence? I don't think that one... When you're a farmer or when you're working the land, you don't feel that there's a difference between you and the land. Mm. You are the land, and mm. the land is you. If the mm. land gets trampled, you hurt. If the farm gets flooded, you drown. If the crops don't make, you starve with the land. And so there was a connection there, but it wasn't kind of like we feel it nowadays, where you feel, oh, I'm going to go into the woods and connect with the trees, mm-hmm. and I'm delib- I the ego me is going to go out and do this. It, you, it was you. you. You were part of it. Sure. It's hard to describe, but... No, yeah, there's no separation, and it's no separation. like not from a spiritual higher power <clears throat> connection, but just from like a being. Yeah. 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 And I don't think that my uh, ancestors were Christians, mm-hmm. and they went to church if it wasn't you know, harvesting season, they went once a week. Usually they went into town and went mm-hmm. to church. What that was was just totally separate. Yeah. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you talk about, if you talk to modern druids, they will tell you that when they get outside, they feel God and they feel connection with nature and they feel like, you know, all, all of this web of life and stuff. It was almost, like in some ways, hard to describe, but the flip of that. Yeah. So when you were growing up, what role did religion or spirituality play? Was it once a week going to town and going to the church? Or? Well, my dad was a was a the son and grandson and great grandson of preachers. Okay, so it, he was very observant. My mother was a born again rebel, and really it was dad who took us to church. Hmm. And I remember, this probably doesn't bear on this conversation, but I do remember we moved to a, to a different town when I was yeah, maybe four, three. And I remember going to the church, and it was the Episcopal Church, and I remember this Father Muller, his name was, coming out to welcome us. It was my dad and his t- two or three little girls at that point in time. And he said to my dad, you're welcome here. We loved having you here. We welcome you, and we welcome your family, and we welcome your children. But I, but Mrs. Johnson, I want to remind you that you are not allowed to take communion in this church mm-hmm. because you're divorced. Mm-hmm. Now, my mother got divorced at age 17 because for good reason. Sure. Yeah. She was probably married six months. But that, that completely fried all of her circuits. She was always mad. She was mad from that day forward. Fairly so. Fairly so. Yeah. Yeah. Which which I'm telling it now like we understood it at that time. We did not understand it at sure. that time. 
No, yeah. no, for sure. You feel betrayed by this place that's supposed to embrace you. Exactly. There's mm -hmm. a betrayal in exactly. it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That it's yeah, uh, and that surfaced for me again later, in my early adulthood, which happened coincided with the first wave of feminism, the Ms. Magazine, mm -hmm. and uh, which was enormously exciting to me being of the rebellious spirit that I was. <laughs> I was married at the time. Okay. I married at 19, as most of us did. We, as yeah. we married young. And I wasn't very happy anyway, but I embraced <laughs> feminism. And I thought this, you know, Betty Friedan was like my <laughs> absolute heroine and sure. oh, all of this. And of course, I just blew up my marriage. I think that it was another era you know, you didn't go to marriage counselors. Well, I also think that you, it sounds like you were raised in a small town, right? Raised to marry and have kids. Then you go to Colorado, and then you end up in in California. Where in California? L.A. Right? Like, if that's not going to open your mind. Well, then that you're did. like, especially at that time. At that time. Oh, my gosh. You, you could go and hear Gloria Steinem in the... Uh, Hollywood High Auditorium. Yeah, so you're not the same person that he married. No wonder, no. like that. And he was up, like... deeply aggrieved. And I, and you know, with many, many years now, yeah, yeah. I can see how that must have been horrible for him. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. You know, to wake up one morning and find out that he was married to a harridan from hell who wasn't going to iron his shirts anymore, and wasn't going <laughs> to shave under her arms anymore, and wasn't going to, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, again, Good you don't see you, it though. at the time, but, you know, how much of it was, you know, a rejection of him personally versus just a rejection of this role that you had been put into in all of these institutions that wanted to control your behavior and all of these things, right? Oh, absolutely. And, of course, I also just completely disconnected from the church because I felt it was patriarchal mm -hmm. and anti-women mm -hmm. and da 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 blah, blah, blah. There wasn't any such thing as feminist theology, which you can study now. Mm -hmm. We just were making it as we went mm -hmm. along. Yeah. But mostly we were making it out of absolute rage. Sure. You know, when we, at that point in time, looked at how we had been raised and what are the expectations. Thank you for doing that work for us we yes. got, and the generations that, that come. Yeah. Oh, we got slammed, believe me. Yeah. There were horrible court battles and, and uh, punitive things against us and it wasn't it wasn't uh, like we decided to do this it was bad mm -hmm. you know it was really bad the press was vicious you know we were all accused of being um lesbians which in that mm -hmm. age was a very nasty dirty word of course it was because it wasn't like nowadays you know. yeah yeah and so <laughs> yeah but uh in those days it was like Witches, we were called witches. We weren't fit to raise children. Mm -hmm. Many of us had children taken away from us because wow. of it. I mean, it was just horrible. But anyway. Now, a real break that needed to happen. Well, yes. I mean, somebody asked me the other day, you know, what what sports did you play? I said, we didn't have sports. <laughs> we weren't allowed to play sports till Title IX. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we fought for Title IX. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we weren't allowed to play sports because it would ruin our uh, uh, fertility. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Laugh, but no, I know. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Anyway, there were just a lot of rules. Yeah. Couldn't get into many, many schools, could not apply for um, things like medical school. 
you know, I had a friend that wanted to go to medical school, so the closest she could get to that was she married a doctor. That, yeah. Those were the days. Yeah. Yeah. Not to harp on them, but we fought. We fought like wildcats, and we got scratched a little bit. Yeah. And people of our generation, we, and even and younger, we forget it sometimes, right? Because we're still continuing to fight in ways that can, are more subtle sometimes, but just as important. And I remember a couple years ago, I, I went to this women's event that they were having at the university that I graduated from. And you could see this real disconnect between um, the older women and the younger women because the older women were still so focused and proud in really meaningful ways of the work that they had done and the struggles that they had to go through. And there was, I felt like a lot of, you know, sort of eye rolling and, oh, why are we still talking about this amongst the younger ones? (laughs) And I just remember sitting there thinking that none of us would have been able to attend this school if these women hadn't fought these fights. When I decided um, to get a divorce, which was unheard Mm -hmm. of, I mean, I remember writing a letter. I didn't even tell my mother for real. I wrote her a letter saying I'm getting a divorce, and she she called me back and said, well, dear, I've taken your letter, and I've put it in a drawer. I'm not going to tell anybody because she'll change your mind. It's like, no, I'm not changing Mm. my mind. I'm getting a blank divorce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, to get a divorce in those days, and then we'll go on to the other stuff, but you couldn't get a credit card in your own name. You had to have a credit card in your husband's name. And so you had no access to money. This is the the things that we take for granted. Like, this is insane. And it was not that long ago in the scheme of things at all. The first company that gave women credit cards was J.C. Penney's. And uh, you didn't have to have your husband's signature on the card, and you didn't have to have his name on the card. Man, it took us, you know, five minutes to get the word around. We all carried J.C. Penney's credit cards because that was it. Yeah. yeah, there was no ATM. There was nothing. You couldn't get money out of the bank without your husband's signature. You couldn't write a check, etc. Wow. So, and if you weren't married, what like what happened to all those women that like weren't married? How did they finance their life? They lived under the aegis of their fathers, uh, oh, mostly, wow. or uncles. They were old maids. They lived in the family houses and mm. were called Aunt Bess or Auntie M or Aunt mm. Ella. And um, they were school teachers, secretaries, or nurses. And you know, even if you were, even if you were a teacher, the principals were all men. Sure. And even if you were a nurse, the doctors were all men. And even if you were a secretary, you were nothing but a, mm-hmm. a scribe to a man. Sure. That was the deal. So, um, so you blew up your marriage. I did. <laughs> and then <laughs> we are women. We are strong. Yes. And then. <laughs> And then where'd you go? What'd you do? I stayed in California and I started teaching at a small alternative school, which was for kids that weren't thriving in public school. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like Princeton Private Academy, yuck, yuck. It was for kids who were failing out, but still smart. Nowadays, we would say they had learning deficits Mm -hmm. or ADHD or autism. None of that was diagnosed in those days. They just weren't making it. So I started teaching there. I became the principal of the school. I got a master's from local teaching college. 
and then just kind of went on from there. And then as far as my spiritual life was concerned, I was still angry with the church. I really was totally angry with the church. And sure. I just was not going back. Although I have to say, you know, I had yearnings for, I mean, I, I had been raised to be deeply religious. Mm-hmm. You know, I believed in God. I, be, I loved hymns. I loved ritual. Um, so it was like, there was a there, piece missing. There was a piece missing, mm-hmm. yes. So I turned to lots of other things, and I was, I was like a smorgasbord. I lived in California, so the smorgasbord mm-hmm. was well stocked. You mm-hmm. could take classes in Buddhism. You could take classes in Kabbalah. You could take classes in palmistry. You could take classes in tarot. You could take classes in, I don't even know, some of the sects that existed at that time. You know, and there was the free love people, and there were the earth people, and there were the hippie people, and there were, you could, you did, it, all the people. It was all right there, and you could just sort of sample, graze, I guess you would call it. Mm. And I was very curious. So I was first attracted, of course, to goddess worship. I remember the first time somebody handed me the book. It's an old book now, but it's called When God Was a Woman. Blew my mind, really. There was a time when we didn't worship a male god with a father and a son. That there were really, (laughs) they weren't just myths. You know, they had myths and then they had women martyrs. Those were your choices. That blew my mind. So I I really explored that goddess worship. Years passed. Mm -hmm. I I lived in California for many, many years. My mother and I were interested in some of the same things. My mother, I sort of introduced my mother to my feminism, and she, of course, latched right on. (laughs) Oh, good for her. Yeah. And I was reading a book about um, the standing stones Mm -hmm. and some of the stones in in Europe. I Mm -hmm. thought I was fascinated by it. And uh, so I had gone to a, a woman friend's house, and she had this table, coffee table book that showed all this, you know, these cairns and stones and dolmens and whatever was fascinated by it and so i i found out where it was well i'm gonna skip a port but anyway i found out where it was for sale so i got one there wasn't any amazon there wasn't any computers (laughs) none of that and i got a copy and within about a week i got sacked from my job still in la at this point still in la but i got sacked with three months severance oh great you went to the stones you're like this is my chance this is it so (laughs) i drove to Colorado with the book and I said what do you think yes you want to go my mother was like this sure (laughs) (laughs) she'd go anywhere she'd do anything she was very adventuresome not knowing anything we uh, had heard from a woman friend that she had gone to a women's conference in Glastonbury Mm -hmm. and so that was a word I knew so I said let's go to Glastonbury we got on the plane <laughs> with our book and we flew to Glastonbury. And, uh, with your coffee table book. With my coffee table book, yeah. And we set out, we got a car, and we set out to find these places. And got oh, I love it. hideously lost, car troubles and... <laughs> all the adventures. All the adventures. And, the, you know, we didn't, pre, we didn't pre-book anywhere or... I mean, we knew nothing. <laughs> And I remember at one point we were trying to find a place to stay overnight and it's getting dark and I'm on the wrong side of the road and it's like, oh my God, we got to find this. So I, um, we tried a couple of places, couldn't get in. We finally came to this 
we were in Cornwall at the time, but we were, came to this town and it had a hotel, a, a real hotel, not a bed and breakfast. And it said, no, you know, no vacancies. Oh. So I told my mom, okay, start slobbering. <laughs> and I went into the hotel and I said, I'm traveling with my, my mother and she's very, very old and she needs to rest. And she's very hungry and we just don't know what to do. Can you help us at all? And they put it and they put us up in one of the staff rooms. Oh, <laughs> and of course I was doing this to my mom all the way up the stairs, just don't smile for Christ's sake. Right. Just keep <laughs> slobbering, you know. <laughs> but that that led us on this we went every year from that point on. We went every year to the stones and how did it feel when you got there, when you finally got to the, you have your book, you got on a plane with your mom, and oh, you get to the stones. Beautiful. I've got beautiful pictures of her. Um, we, we spent a lot of time in Glastonbury, and then we kind of, we stopped, after the first time I stopped driving in England, I said, okay, that's, that's too nerve-wracking. Mm. I want to be able to look out the window. So we would go to Glastonbury, and we would hire somebody who had a car, a, a local. Mm-hmm. And pay them, you know, X amount per day plus gas and say, this is where we want to go. Can you find that? Yeah. And that's how we did it. We did it for years. It was great. And I became very, very interested in um, pilgrimage mm. and the benefits of pilgrimage, not just tourism. Um, this didn't feel like tourism. We could, didn't take a bus somewhere and have somebody tell us what we were seeing. We basically just went with an ordnance map and sometimes you had to walk over 12 fields and stuff and it was but we we were driven to be where we needed to go in order to feel what we needed to feel mm. and so i became very interested in that and i came back <clears throat> after one trip i got on the plane and i thought there ought to be a way for people who want to take a pilgrimage to get the funding to to go. Mm -hmm. There ought to be a way for people to understand that if they need to go and they know where they need to go and they know why they need to go, they don't have to know what's going to happen when they get there because it sure. will never be the same. But they have to know that in order to continue their life's work, they must step on this spot and they can point to it. And I was sitting on the plane thought, thinking, okay, so do it. So I started a foundation with my own money. Mm -hmm. it, I, we lived in a world of money at that time. That was pre, you know, the crashes of Wall Street and Enron and all that crap. So I started a small foundation. I got a board. I got a nonprofit status. I put mm -hmm. money in the bank and uh, just told people to tell us when they needed it. This is beautiful. That's amazing. It was great. We, we, found, we learned a lot. We realized that we didn't have to pay the full, full deal. If you told me that you felt like in order to continue to get over what you needed to get over or get to what you needed to get to, that you needed to go to X, we'd buy you a plane ticket. Your room and board was on you. Mm -hmm. All other fees were on you. But if you wanted a ticket to go, we'd give you a ticket. Later, we, we talked to a lot of them. We had a couple of meetings where we gathered people. We funded 49 people over a period of about eight or nine years. That's amazing. But most of them said, 
It wasn't so much the money, Roma, because often the tickets were less than $700. It was permission to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's this mm-hmm. little push that I was saying. Like, the, the now that, like, what's stopping you? Nothing. You have the ticket. Now you go. Yeah. Like, that's it. Otherwise, you're just whining. So shut up and go sit down. Yeah, that's it's right. permission and it's validation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, pilgrimage is something that people have. It's been important to people for thousands of years. You had that foundation for how many years? We had it till the stock market crashed in 2008. And it was, mm-hmm. there was just no more money. I couldn't, I didn't fund all of it. We actually got money from some people, but it wasn't something that you could go to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, you know, sure. <laughs> and get a grant, <laughs> even a small grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we had some amazing stories. We had one woman who said she, and it wasn't all women, by the way, but mm-hmm. we had one woman who said she wanted to go to South Africa because there was a white lion that had been born and she had either seen a vision or a dream or something about this white lion and she had to go. And the, the little board of five or six of us were very divided on this. It's like, this sounds like a <laughs> joyride to us, you know? <laughs> we kind of fought for a while about it. And finally, I said, well, let's buy her a ticket and then see what happens. Well, this woman went to South Africa, and in the process of seeing the white lion and all this, she came to this village, and there was a village where there was this a school building, which was empty, it, no desks, no nothing, just rooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was a woman there who was trying to start this school. And so the woman that we funded stayed to see if she could help her get started. And to my knowledge, she's still there. That's and they built a school. That she came back to us. Um, she, we funded her to come back uh, to tell her story because we wanted a spokesperson. So we paid for her ticket back to the States and back to Africa. And she told this amazing story, like they had a sign in one of the rooms, this picture, an empty room, that said computer room. Mm. But they didn't have any computers. That was her quest. She figured as long as she was in the States, she was going to raise the money and get the computers. And she did. So, you know, it takes a seed. No, totally. It's this beautiful big puzzle of her dream of this white lion, and then it becomes a a life mission. It's like beautiful and of service. The other question that we asked, we didn't ask it as a question in the application, but we had to feel a sense that they were going to do something with their lives Mm -hmm. based on this. Yeah, this this, is going to be something that's going to change your path. mm -hmm. This was driving them for a reason. Mm -hmm. Some kind of turning point. A turning point, and we it, it never failed. Mm. So, how did this pilgrimage change your life? You put it out available for other people to apply, but obviously, because it moved something within you, what was your turning point? What did that become after that? Well, for me, that whole process led to this amazing, deep appreciation and love for the standing stones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, for all of these years, and spend a long time now, well over 30 years, I've gone back to the stones at least annually, sometimes more. I get strength from them. So anyway, so in the process of all of this, how did I find Druidry? Of course, when you travel into places like that, mm-hmm. especially Glastonbury, mm-hmm. and in some of the more um, known stone circles, Avebury, Stonehenge, you run into people, right, that are Druids, and uh, you talk to them and everything. When I came back from one, 
I decided I wanted to take a workshop with somebody. His name was Robert Stewart, I think. So I looked to see if he was giving any workshops in the States, and he was not. I saw this advertisement for one from John Matthews, who, if you know anything about Celtic spirituality, he's written probably 30 books. And it was going to be outside of Seattle. I was working in L.A., but I was working for a, a group that had a branch in Seattle. Freebie. Mm-hmm. So I just arranged, for, I was the boss, so I arranged for a business trip to our branch in Seattle. <laughs> and then went to I this. I can see you're always working the system. Mama. I <laughs> really believe the system deserves and needs to be worked. For kind sure. Kind of like good bread. For sure. <laughs> so anyway, I went to this, and John Matthews was is an amazing teacher. I won't go into that. There was a gentleman there who... Um, was there and he was from the UK and we got to talking during one of the breaks I said I was really interested in stuff like this and he said well you ought to look into Obad Order of Bards or Obates and Druids and I said really what's that and he told me I talked what is to, that it's the it's an order it's a druidic order mm-hmm. which was started by a person named uh, Philip Cargom based on the teachings of his teacher who who was from the lineage of the older order of the Druids through the Estefan of uh, Cornwall, etc. The Druids go back thousands of years. And so Philip started the order of bards, ovates, and Druids, which are the three levels of Druidry. He uh, had, you know, a few people. And now there's probably been 10 or 12,000 people all over the world. And uh, came back down to Ashland, where my... I'm trying to remember whether we were married or not. My husband or husband-to-be, I don't know, my ace boon companion, was there. And I walked in and I said, I have decided to become a druid. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll become a druid. I said, well, you know, you're not even interested in this stuff. He says, if you become a druid and I don't, we're going to go like this. So I'm going where you're going. That's very mm-hmm. smart. Mm-hmm. And so we embarked on the course study. It took us five years to work through the levels. You know, you the coursework still exists today, and you can do it, get the, the stuff to do. You can't do it online. Mm-hmm. We worked at it. We did a, a druid ceremony study thing once a week on with a little altar on our coffee table for years and years and years and years. And traveled back and forth to Scotland and, and England and to the Stones in the middle of all of that. So when you were doing this, it started to make sense. This is the way. Because you were talking about how that church piece was missing and how growing up nature was one but was not the same as spirituality. And now it feels like the pieces are starting to come together. Pieces were feel starting, that way? Yes, the pieces were starting to come together. And, and I love the spiritual message of Druidism. There are different levels. First level is called the bardic level, mm-hmm. and it's basically opening your creativity. This is a three-minute course. And it's the songs and the poetry and the self-expression and your artistic creativity come out. The second level, which is called the ovate level, is more what we would call the spiritual level, where you're dealing with the ancestors, you're dealing with mythology, you're looking into your own spiritual inward path. Mm -hmm. And then the third level, the druid path, is more overview of how all of this, including the 
the um, muggle world, to use a Harry Potter term, <laughs> fits in mm -hmm. and takes a long time to get there. Sure. But what I found was two things. I found that the concept that God was in everything, God was alive and in everything. Every leaf, every mm -hmm. stone, every plant had sentience, was a conscious sentient being. Mm -hmm was the connector for me mm -hmm. because it wasn't like God is over here in church and nature's over here or any of that. It was everything is God. And so there's a huge concentration, especially in people's minds, that Druidry is all about nature. And in some ways it is all about nature. It's uh, the church of earth and sky. They mostly meet outside. They don't form churches. They don't form, but they, um, they form groves, often they call them groves, which are meeting places, often in nature or in someone's yard, but outdoors. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the circle of life, the wheel of the year, is extremely important. And, um, you know, the turning of the seasons and mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the acorn that grows into the sapling, that grows into the tree, that grows into the branches, that grows into the acorn, that drops to the ground, that grows into the sapling, that goes into the tree. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, if, in Christian terms, it's pure resurrection theology. Yes. yes. Life renews itself constantly. Our lives renew. Our, we are not, this isn't it. Yeah. In my, the way I feel about it. I'm not preaching to you. I'm just saying. Sure. <laughs> I'm not. You can preach. I like it. <laughs> I'm not. The aroma of me that dies when I die is the physical body. Mm -hmm. Only. I can't die because I'm part of God and God can't die. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, however you want to picture that, of whether you reincarnate or join just join with the the elements of the earth or whether you join the elements of the sky that's on you you can kind of work that out for yourself but you can't die mm -hmm. because you're part of god nothing can die really and that i loved did you share this with your mom that you were becoming oh, you know, a when, druid when, uh, when glenn and i decided to do this of course we told her so she, she and this woman that I just told you about, the 92-year-old, uh -huh. she and Velma started doing the coursework. So they did it together. We did it together. <laughs> and, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was fantastic. Did they take it all the way also to they the They did not. Level? They took it through the second level. <clears throat> okay. And, uh, and it, was a good, it was a good place for them to stop because they were both getting into their 80, late, late 80s and early 90s. And when you're dealing at the ovate level, you're dealing with the ancestors and the connection mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And that's kind of where you live at that stage mm -hmm. of your life. I agree. Yeah, that's, I agree. That's the, the, the curtain's thinner. The curtain is thinner. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and so they worked that level and stayed, and stayed there. To me, it's just been a really uh, beautiful path. And I love some of the ritual and I love the feelings of nature. I've, the druids that I've met in groups. I don't go to a lot of druid groups because I'm not really a group type person. Mm -hmm. I usually go to groups and then blow them up and that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, Send her to a farm. 
You're getting the connection here. There is a connection here that I would be sent to the farm. And then that's probably where I was headed in the first place. I just <laughs> should go directly to the farm. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I love their I love their uh, their way of thinking. What it did for me, however, to to talk about the the um, morphing of this sure. mm -hmm. is interestingly enough it led me back to my christian roots because i could see just what i just said like with the acorn into the mm -hmm. oak into the earth i could see for see a picture of mm -hmm. what i of resurrection theology not crucifixion theology mm -hmm. but resurrection theology mm -hmm. and i could see how the rights of of the christian church you know, the bread and the wine, the shared meal, have been with us throughout all of time. Mm -hmm. To get in a room and share a meal is the way of transferring, becoming one. And so I did a lot of studying about the Celtic, early Celtic world mm -hmm. and the early Celtic spirituality. And I wrote about it. I started teaching classes about it. And then I wrote a piece for the Obad group I wrote a piece on the convergence between Celtic spirituality, Christian spirituality, Celtic Christians, which were not, by the way, hooked up with Rome. Yeah. Nope. And Druidry, and how they grew from the same mm -hmm. roots. How we don't have to fight with one another. We don't have to say, I'm a Druid and I hate Christians because they're blah, blah. And you don't have to say, I'm a Christian and I hate them because they're heretics or whatever. Just stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there are aspects of, um, of both that are healing. It all goes back to the ego getting in the way. Whatever you believe in, it shouldn't matter. You're still part of God. So, exactly. Like, I think we have to not hold on to the, the warfare idea. Mm. That it's me or them, or it's us or them. It's sure. Druid or Christian. I consider myself a Druid, and I am a Christian. Mm -hmm. And I write about that, and I teach from that. So let's talk about what you write and what you teach because we have some really interesting books that everybody should i mean we'll put them on the blog for everybody mm -hmm. to know and we'll post them but well the first book i brought you is a book called meant it comes from the celtic saints who went sailing they've took off in these little boats saint brendan saint columbus mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of those saints saint malogs they put together a little boat and they set off into the ocean not knowing where they were going mm -hmm. and how they were going to get there because they felt they were God directed so it was like you'll get on the outgoing tithe and you will go where God means for you to go you'll end up where you're meant to be your way is known but not to you mm. you'll come ashore where you're meant to that's the meaning of meant in this case okay. and you're just which applies to life exactly everything yeah. right the faith it's a leap of faith. Yeah, just and get it, on the plane and make it to Glastonbury. See what happens. Yeah, I think it's also, I think it's even more than that. It's a leap of trust, mm. you know. Well, so, and the in my experience, the best things happen when you take that leap of trust. Yes. The best things, the yeah. best results. So the meant, I taught many, many classes, and I used a lot of illustrations, a lot of poetry. If you're a Druid, the, the ancient Druids, in order to get to the Druid, grade had to memorize 10,000 lines of poetry. So poetry is a big part poetry of Druids. Poetry is a big part. And, <laughs> it, and any Druid ceremony will have poetry mm -hmm. and music of some sort, probably. 
but always poetry. Do you still remember those 10,000 lines? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I've contributed a few. Oh, very nice. <laughs> so, so that became the, those were the, uh, the, some of the slides and worksheets from that class. And when I teach that class, that's kind of where I'm coming from. It talks about uh, pilgrimage. Where do you teach this class? Well, I haven't taught it since I've lived in Princeton because I haven't found any place that's interested mm -hmm. enough to set up a group. Partly I will put it out there. Mm -hmm. I don't know enough people, but mm -hmm. there's the, the idea of pilgrimage. There's the idea of imminence, that idea that God is in everything. And then there's the idea of the the divine feminine. I feel like we could put together a group for this class. Yes. I would come and teach it. I would love that. Yeah, we'll keep this book yeah. very close. The second uh, book that I gave you called The Rose Chapel or Building a Sanctuary yes. in the World is a workbook based on a class that I taught on the Druid platform when I was in lockdown. I went to the UK thinking I was on my way to Scotland. Mm -hmm. I got as far as England and the whole country shut down. Mm. Mm. And Thank I COVID. Yeah, and I couldn't get back to the States for six months. But meanwhile, I taught this class because I felt like people needed to know that, based on my own experience again, you need to have a holy sanctuary. You can have it in your head. Mm. Go, to, go to the closet and close the door. But it also helps to build one. And so I, I did this workbook on how to build a sanctuary with the idea that at the time, nobody could go outside and yeah. build anything. Yeah. So you build it first in your mind. And then when the time comes that you can go out and build it, you have the work done. This is fantastic. It really is step by step. And step by you, know, step. you have a seven days. Day one, envisioning. Day two is clearing. Day three is building. Then you have furnishing, sanctifying, welcoming, and a sacred day of rest. Mm -hmm. the, um, the concept of building the sanctuary came kind of a different way. I was... When my husband died, which was really very, very hard on me, mm. we'd been together for a long time. We were buddies, traveling companions, druids, you know. And mm -hmm. I mean, just the fact that you said that he was like, you're becoming one, I'm becoming one. Yeah. Yeah. Just That's to go your was. way. Yeah. So he died, and that was a horrible blow. And I went to Scotland, and I was uh, up up in the Hebrides, near the big Callanish stone circle, which is very important to me. And I had some friends who said, oh, do you want to go to church with us? I like to look inside of churches. I like mm. to go to churches. I like to listen, see what's going on. <laughs> so we went to this way, 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 way out there. And a woman who had been a nun and probably was still a nun had taken what we would call a garage on her property. They call it the barn. Mm. You've taken this, stripped it completely, taken everything out, whitewashed to the walls, and put a stove in, two little benches, and a tiny altar, maybe the size of this. A computer. Yeah, it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And people would come um, two or three times a week. She would just do a little uh, worship service. Mm. And it was like the most meaningful thing to me, because that's how I felt. I was so far from everywhere. I was so... I was out there. I was just out there, and I didn't know mm -hmm. how to get back, you mm -hmm. know. So I was driving uh, back with my friends, and I said, you know, well, first the first thing that happened was I thought, she just made this out of this place, you know. And at the moment, glimmering in the back of my mind, was I was living in Colorado at the time, was I have a shed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And something went click, 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 click. I thought, but I can't, you know, my shed was filled literally from floor to ceiling and side to side with shit. Most of it, my husband's. Mm -hmm. Very important to him and his stuff and his equipment and his everything. And so I told Peter as I'm, we're driving along, and this is in the book, I said, you know, I'd like to build a sanctuary like Sister Claire. He said, so build it. I said, well, I can't because there's all that stuff in the shed. And he said, so chuck it. I said, what are you talking about? I said, that mm -hmm. stuff is valuable. You know, my husband was a world-renowned photographer, and it was all this photography equipment and cameras. And blah, 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 blah. I won't bore you with that. But I said, some of that stuff is valuable. I can't just chuck it. And I'll never forget this. He looked right at me, and he said, Roma, is the value in the stuff, or was the value in the man? Hmm. Of course, hmm. I melted into a puddle, and I said, the value was in the man. And he said, so chuck it. The man's dead, Roma. Chuck it. So I did. Whoa. Mm -hmm. I did. I went home. It took me six months. Also the permission to do it, right? We permission go back to, to that. Do it. Mm -hmm. I could only do it for about an hour a day without having a complete mental and emotional and spiritual breakdown and sob on the floor. Mm -hmm. And then I, so I just said, okay, an hour a day. And I just started clearing this stuff away. And uh, finally, so six months later, I had cleared the shed. I had it painted. I put a rattan rug on the floor, built a tiny altar, and had a sanctuary. And it was a very healing process for me. Oh, it's I believe like that. It, and I took that with me. And when I was stuck in England and couldn't get home, I told Philip, I was staying at Philip's house, I said, Philip, I, 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 I want to teach this because people need to know this, that even in lockdown, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you got to have a place you can go to. But I know, I'm going to say women, but just because at my age, a lot of people that you know are widows. One widow just put it right out there. She said, I can't do anything until I clear away all of my husband's papers. Her husband was a famous something. And, uh, you know, I saw her like three years later, and she still was working on those papers. And mm. I said, you know, it's, he's not there, and he's never going to be there. We attach to these physical representations and possessions. And I mean, possessions. Really, yeah. And feel like that attachment brings us something. Well, we also but feel... But I'm not sure that it does. Oh, well, I'm not sure either. I think part of it is we feel like... Uh, and I'll just speak for myself. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I know that this was precious to Glenn, mm -hmm. and he never went anywhere without this, mm -hmm. and I give it or throw it or sell it away... I'm disrespecting him. So that's a real feeling. For sure. Mm -hmm. And there's also the feeling that if I let go of this, I mean, I've already had to let go of him. Now I've let go of this, and this is part of him. Sooner or later, I'll have nothing left. Mm -hmm. And that's a real feeling. It's mm -hmm. not true, of course. They never go away. Right. But it's a very real feeling that if I don't sure. hold on to this, he's going to be gone to me. Yeah. And I think also you miss out connecting with them in a different way when you're still holding on to this stuff right? exactly mm -hmm. uh, versus like feeling them in your heart all the time or yeah. with mm -hmm. you or you know mm -hmm. a blue jay or a mockingjay or speaking their stories yeah. and sharing that with and the other folks with, and things like that sorry i didn't mean to interrupt the, uh, the problem with that is that people don't always want to hear the stories if i've just lost my husband and mm. i want to tell you a story about my husband people kind of go oh I mean, that's really scary. What, what, 
I don't mm-hmm. want to hear your grief mm-hmm. or I don't want to feel it or I might be afraid that someday I'm going to lose my husband or I don't know what goes on in people's minds. I think it's I think it's also a little bit of I don't know how to react to what you're telling me because should I feel sorry? Should I laugh with you about like are we at the point where we just talk about them as if they were still around, you know, like tiptoe a little bit. Well, and it's different if it's fresh or time yeah. has passed. and Exactly. I think that in, when it's fresh, will it make you suffer to you talk? Like, make, will it cause you pain? You can't make somebody suffer than they're already suffering. That's true. <laughs> There's two words. I tell this to people. Whether you're, the, whether you're the, the person who's had the loss or the person who's expressing concern for that person, there's two words that always work. It's hard. Mm-hmm. If I start if I start talking about my husband and I start crying and all that stuff and you say are you all right? I shouldn't say I'm okay. No. Yeah. I should say it's hard. It's hard. And if I tell you a story about something that, you know, we did together and, and now we miss him and all that and you can say that's hard. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we've connected. Those two words. I'm going to keep that one. Keep yeah, that one. That's that's the easiest thing. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to a woman in a group I was doing in Colorado, and she had lost her husband, and she had to go to the family reunion or a wedding or something within the first year. And she didn't want to go, but she felt like she should go and had to go, but she kind of wanted to go. But she said, I don't think I can go, because I don't know what to say to these people. They're all going to want to say something about Ralph or whatever. And I said, just look at them in the eye and say, it's hard. Mm -hmm. And they will immediately drop into compassion. Yeah. They can say... I bet it is. Would you like a hug or something? Yeah. And that makes sense. Because uh, if not, you're always with this guard up or something. It makes me think about, we were talking about this a little before we started even recording today. We all walk around pretending it's all okay all the time. And a simple phrase like that, whether it's grief or whether it's something else that you're going through, another kind of struggle. But letting down that wall and saying it's hard and making that connection and you don't have to is explain. everything right yeah. you don't have to explain yeah yeah I don't and, have to and if somebody there, says to you say it's hard and yeah. somebody says well tell me about it then you you can say yeah it's hard to talk about it I'll, yeah yeah you can give yeah. as much or as you little give as, as you much want. as you want for sure but but um, just taking down that wall mm-hmm. exactly makes all the difference for everybody, I yeah, think, in yeah. the way that we connect about difficult things. I think that in those situations, particularly for, for this example, if it's been a year or whatever, I feel you. But then if you don't, you don't know how far to go into well, the you conversation. Can start slow. Mm-hmm. You can say, hi, it's Roma. I was looking at my calendar and I realized that a year ago today, Ralph died. Yes, it's hard. I bet it is. Let me know if you want to have a cup of tea or if you want, you know, visitation or, if you know, if you want me to come by or you want to go for a walk or something. No. Yeah. Or, yeah, that'd be helpful. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about this third book that you have because it, it, it ties in, right? Mm-hmm. We, I think a lot of people struggle with talking with people who are grieving, but also with people who are dying. Yes. Tell us about Walk With Me. Well, Walk With Me for... A period of time, shortly before I left Colorado Springs, I was working as a hospice chaplain. Mm. You have to take a tablet, you know, the computer to log your visits and blah, blah. It's really stupid. Mm. But I also had this kind of a purse full of 
poems, being a druid, of course, I carry poems everywhere. And so I had a purse full of poems and references and sure. stuff in my purse. And I realized that if I had it in just a little book, not the whole Bible, not the whole prayer book, not the whole Alan Wolfsfeld compendium on how to do this. And, and this booklet that we're talking about um, is probably... I don't know, three by five. I wanted it to fit in your purse. In your fits in your hand, fits in your purse. You could put it in your jeans pocket. Mm-hmm. And it Already. has it has sections. So it has what do you what do you? A lot of times you're sitting with somebody who's dying, and you're there for hours. Just ideas for what to do when as they're dying. Some ideas for how you feel. Where like, can people get these books, Roma? Yeah, I can get them on my web from me. Yeah. by going to my website. Okay. And we'll put that up online yeah. on the on Yeah, we'll make sure we have the, a link. Yeah. Blog. Yeah. This one says, "'Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch." <laughs> She's I getting her glasses, everyone. I'm getting my glasses because I can't see. <laughs> "'Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch, a fearful thing to love, to hope, to dream, to be, to be, and oh, to lose." A thing for fools, this, and a holy thing, a holy thing to love. For your life has lived in me, your laugh once lifted me, your word was gift to me. To remember this brings painful joy. Tis a human thing, love, a holy thing to love what death has touched. Mm. Sometimes we need something like that. Yeah, to put the words we do. that and I we was, can't have. I was thinking, I, you know, I have sat at bedsides with folks who were dying, and you want to spend that time. You want to share those hours. What do you say? Yeah, it's sometimes when you run out of words. To be able to read that and start a conversation out of that entire yeah. poem. Yeah. And both that and the Sanctuary book, I love, I love these so much because this idea in our head or many people have this idea or there's this construction of spiritual work and the practicalities of daily life being two separate things if we want to live a life where all the pieces of it or many pieces of it are spiritual work in our daily life these are such wonderful tools to well that's marry those two things which shouldn't be divorced to begin with but very much can be well, we're enculturated to keep them separate. Yes. We've been taught in, in a bifurcated mm-hmm. world since birth. Mm-hmm. And so it isn't like our fault that we see this. No, not at all. <laughs> but no, these are but right. these are like really wonderful practical tools to help us start bringing them together and overcome all of that. Yeah, yeah, that's the intent. So Roma, is there any knowledge that you want to pass down to the rest of the listeners and us out here? Yes, you um, are a perfect being. You're made of God, you're made in the image of God, and you are celebrated as that and loved. And she's looking straight at me, people. We should record this and put it online because it's (laughs) very powerful. (laughs) But now you're going to say it again. You are a perfect being. Yeah. You are part of God. God lives in you. You are beloved and special. I hope everybody heard that. I hope so. Yeah. Because it's true of everybody. Yeah. I mean, you can be in the worst possible trouble in your life that that people will tell you it can't happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you may think that something's wrong with you or, you know. Or they, something you did in the past yeah. that's hindering yeah. you. 
chuck it. <laughs> Seriously. The past cannot bite you because it's over there. It can't get through the wall. It's yeah. done. It's done. And as much as you may think that was hard, you can acknowledge that that was hard, whether it's divorce or loss or financial problems or car wrecks or I don't know what. But it can't hurt you from where you're sitting right now. Yeah. Right now, you're sitting inside yourself, and yourself is a child of God. And God is in there with you. Mm, that's, that's a good reminder for everybody. Yeah. Thanks, Roma. You're welcome. This is a great, great talk. Join us next week when we talk with energy queen, Romy Toussaint. And don't forget, you can listen and re-listen to all of our past episodes on your favorite music streaming app.